clean energy not only help grow economies and reduce carbon emissions, but also strengthen democracies? That may seem like a tall order for some technology. But when you consider how petrodictatorships have roiled global markets in the past year, triggering price spikes, resource shortages, and not to mention war, making the U.S. an arsenal of clean energy could help pave the way to greater stability. This is the Political Climate Podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. And I'm your host, Julia Piper. This marks the fourth and final episode in the Arsenal of Clean Energy monthly series. This series was made possible by Third Way, a center-left think tank championing modern solutions to the most challenging problems in U.S. policy, including the economy, national security, and climate change. We launched this series to tackle tough questions on how to balance climate action with immediate energy demands, while also balancing affordable prices for consumers, promoting economic growth, and enhancing global security. Addressing any of these issues in isolation puts the U.S., its allies, and ultimately humanity as a whole at risk. So in this episode, I sit down with Josh Fried, the head of Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, to connect the dots on these various themes and how we should think about the future. Then, later in this episode, you'll hear from U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, who recently spoke at a recent Third Way event in D.C. called When America Leads. She talked about the impact of new landmark federal laws and how the Biden administration is supporting the development of stronger, cleaner, and more secure energy resources that are made right here in America. We're thrilled to be able to bring you the secretary's comments right here on the podcast. You can find all the episodes in the Arsenal of Clean Energy series on the Political Climate feed. That's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and beyond. We'll also link to the series homepage on the Third Way website in the show notes. With that, let's turn now to my conversation with Josh about clean energy being the key to a new era of U.S. leadership. Hey, Josh, how are you feeling on this uh, late September day amid a busy, busy week and month even? Gosh, year. (laughs) It still feels weird to say, but I'm feeling quite excited and optimistic as a climate and clean energy advocate. We have a lot to both celebrate and a lot of really important work ahead of us that has hundreds of billions of dollars in resources that we've literally never had before here in the United States. Yeah, we've been able to break some of that down here on the Arsenal of Clean Energy series that Political Climate has produced over the last few months with Third Way, looking at different angles from advanced nuclear to broader U.S. innovation to how we're going to cope with fossil fuels and the need to decarbonize. I hope to kind of wrap up some of those themes in this conversation before we turn to comments from Secretary of Energy Granholm. And I want to do this by first going back in time. So back in March, you and your colleague Ryan Fitzpatrick wrote a memo that inspired this series. It was called The Arsenal of Clean Energy. And you talked about how the United States must step in and become that arsenal of clean energy, just as we were the arsenal of democracy when fascism threatened Europe 80 years ago. So walk us through the inspiration for that piece and the argument there that you wanted to make about this moment in time and the role that the U.S. needs to play. Taking a step back and and rewinding time for a moment, through the early months of 2022, as we saw Russia make increasing bellicose threats against Ukraine and noticed, as we have seen in the past, uh, Europe and particularly Germany's extreme reliance on Russia, not only for natural gas, but also for oil, for its transportation sector, China becoming 
increasingly aggressive about its ambitions in influencing, at least economically, if not militarily, Asia and Africa, and in the Middle East, not being completely certain about how reliable countries like Saudi Arabia are as allies or having the best interests of democracies at heart, we paused and said, there needs to be a different approach to this. And there needs to be a case to be made as to why the investments we were then hoping would be part of a reconciliation package, at that point called Build Back Better, would not only address climate change, but would do more to project the shared values that countries like the United States and the United Kingdom and in the European Union, as well as allies like Japan and and Korea, all shared. And so we looked at how there was a, a current theme of that, which is the countries that were starting to really hoard resources or had a lot of natural resources, oil and natural gas in Russia, the critical minerals that China was increasingly taking control of and processing, those countries were using them to try to influence and in many cases manipulate other countries. And it made sense for the United States with a strong foundation and clean energy innovation and investment, a lot of resources that we could try to provide a counter argument to that. Interesting. You're really sort of nesting these climate, energy, and innovation needs in this global landscape. Obviously, there are immediate needs. We know that Europe this winter is going to face an energy supply crunch. We've already been looking at that. But it's interesting to see you make this broader point about the role of the United States. And to that end, you know, we have seen a lot of developments. I think in the last few months, we've seen things like the Chips and Science Act get signed into law. Of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, the new iteration of that Build Back Better bill was signed into law. Historic amounts of funding now rolling out across the country. So do those packages together start to make up what you were calling for back in March in having the U.S. step up in a way to you know, be that global leader that you wanted it to be? Absolutely. Our hope when we wrote the article was that it would make the case for the United States to take action and have historic levels of investment in clean energy, infrastructure, innovation, scaling, investment overseas, so that it could not just advance American goals in terms of the economy, in terms of cleaner energy resources, but also broader goals in showing that the United States truly is a leader committed to the kind of climate action and shared values that presidents historically of both parties, with one exception, unfortunately, have talked about. Leaders of both parties have always talked about, which is democracy, independence of borders, international trade and cooperation. One thing that President Biden has talked a lot about, which helped inform and inspire our work also, was this idea of making clean energy ubiquitous. So that at some point, when we talk about energy, it's assumed it's clean. Whereas today, when we talk about energy, it's assumed in many cases that it's based on fossil fuels. The connection that that made for us was that fossil fuel energy is very, very often used as a tool for diplomacy. It's used as a proxy in lieu of military action to try to influence or force other countries to do oftentimes a a petro-authoritarian state's bidding, and that those 
confrontations or competitions were always asymmetrical. It was only the country that had the fossil fuel resources that would either turn the spigot on more or tighten it that had the advantage and that could try to use that for its own interests. The most glaring and immediate example was Russia in the months leading up to its invasion of Ukraine, where it was very explicit, and particularly Vladimir Putin was very explicit, that he thought he had a way to squeeze Europe and force it to look the other way if Russia was going to engage in military action and and illegally invade Ukraine, because he thought that Europe was too reliant on Russian natural gas and oil and couldn't escape it. He was surprised happily and proven wrong because the EU and the United States and other countries have worked together to reduce the EU's reliance on and ultimately hopefully eliminate their alliance on Russian natural gas and oil. It made us realize, hey, if the United States made these big investments that we now have with the CHIP Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the bipartisan infrastructure law, we could deploy clean energy for good the way Russia was deploying fossil fuels for ill, and hopefully build more common bonds with our allies so that we could all share in that. At risk of making this too simplistic, do you think the clean energy transition is necessary to continue to see democracy perpetuate around the globe? You know, I don't want to be too reductive, but is it central enough to say that these missions will shape together in a very intertwined way the future of global stability and freedom? If we and our allies leverage clean energy well, it could become an incredibly important tool to protect democracy, protect and expand national sovereignty, and enable countries to identify and live the values that they want to live. And it's not just in the area of conflict now, immediately in front of us in Europe, it easily could be used as a tool for good in other parts of the world, in Africa, in Asia, in South America. But like any other technology, it's simply a tool and how it ends up getting deployed and whether it's used for good, for ill, or neither depends on how the people in the countries deploying it actually deploy it. So the answer to that is is completely unwritten. It does beg us all to really expand the aperture of how we think about clean energy, to take it beyond simply a tool to decarbonize as critically important as that is, or merely a tool to help mitigate climate change and look at it as the underpinning of economic activity and international relations that energy has been for centuries. Right. In that regard, energy is is not new to the, you know, global stability and political landscape. So take your point there. And also on the fact that so much of this has yet to be written, we are still working on building out our domestic supply chains for clean energy and ensuring that they are fair and, you know, affordable and uh, have the most robust, you know, human rights, et cetera. So still much more to be done on ensuring the clean energy transition works for the world in the best way possible. 
But speaking of the opportunities ahead, Third Way recently completed a study in partnership with Breakthrough Energy and Boston Consulting Group that examined the economic growth that could come from betting big on America's potential to grow and lead in specifically six key energy sectors. It's called Potential for U.S. Competitiveness in Emerging Clean Technologies, and we'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. So Josh, could you walk us through some of the highlights of this fresh off the press report from Third Way? Absolutely. This report was inspired, by the way, from a series of conversations we had with a number of other people within the energy innovation space, when all of us asked each other, what do we think the value of emerging clean energy technologies are in terms of market size, in terms of opportunity to create revenue and and new economic opportunities, and also where the different supply and value chains might emerge? Nobody had an answer. Everyone said, that's a great question, ask someone else. And so I've always found that when you talk to a number of really smart people who spend all of their time poring over questions like this, and they keep pointing to someone else to ask, that's when you find a question that really still hasn't been answered. So we decided and fortunately had an excellent partner in Breakthrough Energy to take that as a challenge for ourselves and then with Boston Consulting Group, a challenge for all of us to look at. The study identified six clean energy technologies, long-duration energy storage, electric vehicles, low-carbon hydrogen, advanced nuclear, and direct air capture, as well as clean steel, and asked, where is the value economically, and are there parts of those value chains that give the United States a really good opportunity to have a global competitive advantage? They found across those emerging six technologies, there could be somewhere between nine and $10 trillion of domestic market value over the next 30 years and create as much as or more than $340 billion in exports annually. If we got to that point, it would be over $100 billion more in exports annually than the current value of all of America's fossil fuel-related exports. That shows you just how big in only these six technology areas, the U.S. clean energy market could be. That's some real, you know, money, some real numbers there. And I think it also found the report that, you know, there'd be millions of jobs created and something on the order of $500 billion in tax revenue here in the U.S. over the next three decades. So giving back to the country as well. But let me ask you, what does it take to get from A to B? We're talking about a massive leveling up of American clean energy, a concept that is very popular on a bipartisan basis and large part is making more here at home. But of course, it's not the easiest thing to do. There's the idea that this is still building stuff. You have to site these facilities. There are questions about land use to permitting to environmental protection at a different scale. Of course, there's the dollars that have to go into it that I know the legislation we mentioned helps support, but surely there'll need to be more. So what are some of the themes that come to mind when you think about how we accomplish this and capture that value that you just laid out? To capture the value of the clean energy markets requires at least two big sets of actions involving the federal government that ultimately are bipartisan in that there's controversy on both sides of the aisle around them. One is it requires a return to industrial strategy. There is an important role for the federal government to play to look at what technologies, markets, other actions are in the national interest 
and deploy smart coordinated policy to guide the private sector to get there. In the 1980s, that had gone out of vogue. We stopped as a country to think about and develop industrial strategy and really left it entirely to the markets to either build American industry and companies and capital or not. And in some areas that worked, in in many areas it didn't. It's left us vulnerable in which sectors of the economy have really developed in the United States, which we have decided or left to chance to really be developed elsewhere. We can't afford to do that with clean energy. So we need, as the Biden administration has really started to do, particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, but also previous policies, say these sectors are very important. We think they should in part be developed in these parts of the countries because they have excellent assets, including existing infrastructure, highly skilled workforces, previous history with this type of technology or energy source. And let's start building it there in partnership with the private sector. And then the private sector can run with it. New companies can be created. A lot of money can be made. And we can partner with companies from uh, and countries from other parts of the world to really see that, that grow robustly. The second thing is we have to build a lot very quickly. We're going to have to double or triple the amount of solar built and deployed in the United States, the amount of wind deployed in the United States, develop and deploy an entirely new set of advanced nuclear technologies, carbon capture. It goes on and on. The United States doesn't build things quickly anymore. We, it took us 80 years to add an additional mile or two to the subway line on the east side of New York City. We don't have that much time to wait. So we are going to have to look at ways to apply different approaches to how projects get evaluated and permitted. That doesn't mean eliminating community input. It doesn't mean anyone can build whatever they want, wherever they want. But it does mean we need to recognize that there's a balance that needs to be struck and that speed needs to be a priority. So we're talking about strategic industries and how the U.S. can lead here at home and eventually export technologies abroad. So the legislation we've discussed sets a critical framework for that. For instance, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, includes sweeping tax credits and rebates for a whole suite of different kinds of clean energy technologies. The bipartisan infrastructure bill has funding for the electricity sector, things like transmission and distribution, as well as conventional roads and bridges and that sort of thing that serves as a backbone for U.S. economic growth. Then there's the Chips and Science Act, which is focused largely on the semiconductor sector, which is used in clean tech, including things like electric vehicles. So while we can't undersell the significance of these public investments, there are still some blanks that need to be filled in. First, around funding. Not every measure in the laws that we've described have dollars allocated to them. I'm thinking specifically of that Chips and Science Act here. Secondly, it's not given that once we invest in a technology at home, that those industry players will somehow be able to compete globally. And even if they can, I have to imagine it could fuel even more competition with even our allies than it would collaboration. So Josh, as we look to paint a full picture, I know I've sort of thrown out a lot here, but how do you think about some of the challenges and the gaps in this new landscape we're trying to create? Let's take those one step at a time because you've raised a number of important issues. On the funding question, the provisions of the three bills you referred to, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Law, and the Chips and Science Act, all passing 
in less than two years means we now have well over half a trillion dollars in tax credits, in grants, in loan guarantees, in other investments to speed up the transition to net zero. We should celebrate that. We need to help and work with government to make sure that the public-private partnerships that will emerge from it are developed quickly and really effectively so that money gets out the door in a smart way repeatedly. It's a lot of money even for the federal government to spend, and there's a short period of time where it needs to spend that. That doesn't mean we're done. So whether it's in the CHIPS Act and and several of the provisions there or in other investments in in innovation, there's more funding that needs to be done on a year-on-year basis. Fortunately, Congress does do that. We still have an appropriations process. There's still any number of programs that will continue to need funding or require more funding. And we're going to learn that there will be unintended consequences some places. For example, if in just one very small area, we have advanced nuclear power start to take off and there's a lot more demand either domestically, internationally, or both, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the agency that licenses reactors, will need more staff. They simply won't have enough people to evaluate all these licenses and approve or submit them for uh, adjustments in a reasonable amount of time. Apply that to every regulatory agency that is going to have to gear up for a lot more projects, seeking approval, seeking evaluation, and there's funding there. There are going to be new technologies that emerge that need additional or different types of funding. There may be new opportunities that we need to seize. So the funding is not done. Happily, it will never be done, but it will be in different areas than legislators and and advocates thought over the last several years, and, and we'll adjust there. In terms of trade and exports, the clean energy market is such an enormous market that it is not and cannot be seen as a zero-sum game. Many of the domestic content provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act also included opportunities for America's allies to be a key part of the value or supply chain. We need to lean into that and make or help the countries that we work with or countries that we want to develop closer relationships understand, see, and truly feel like the deal that they would get with working with the United States would be mutually beneficial. We've seen over the last decade plus how in many cases relying too heavily on importing technologies, key components, even intellectual property is challenging for our economy, endangers our security. We need to walk the walk on that and also look at where we can work with other countries and say, we're going to build a battery plant in the United States. We also recognize you're going to want to build a battery plant in Eastern Europe, in Africa, in a country in Latin or South America. And we should partner on that so that there is a big benefit economically, jobs, and in terms of the supply chain here and with our allies. That's a really helpful clarification on the exporting side and how to think about it. Because, you know, even throughout this series, we've talked about inventing, building, deploying here at home, and then making it and exporting it abroad. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying yes, and 
we're not going to do that alone. This is about creating a framework where it kind of goes back to your democracy point and creating a broader global ecosystem of safer democracy-based, you know, systems that can all work together and thrive and prosper. Am I saying that correctly? And are there specific elements you'd point to that enable that? That's a great description of it. And look, when when you work particularly in US policy, whether it's live in Washington and operate in Washington like I do, or are in other parts of the country, but primarily talk to people focused on the United States or on national policy, we all become susceptible to tunnel vision and see how great, for example, this half trillion dollars in investment looks to us and assume that the rest of the world will see it the same way. I recently had a conversation with a trade minister from a close ally of the United States who initially voiced those same concerns and said, we're a small country. The United States is our biggest trading partner, but we rank very far down the list of trading partners for the United States that you export to. How do we make sure that we don't get lost in this deal? And we talked about how different countries have already started to really develop or have the potential to develop robust parts of supply chains. Offshore wind is a great example where we have a situation where countries like Norway have enormous infrastructure, skilled workforce, intellectual property around building offshore wind that the United States not only needs to catch up on, but can learn from. So we may see in that instance, for example, a Norwegian or a Danish or another country's company come and work in the United States, but also end up significantly benefiting the country in which they're based as well. We could see that happen with steel. We could see it happen with hydrogen. We could see it with any number of the technologies that require significant investment, significant infrastructure, and IP be built in many places across the world, across multiple countries, core companies and industries. We have to be coordinated about it in a similar fashion as we're calling for industrial strategy domestically to ensure that everyone gets the benefit amongst our allies that we want it to. And we're thinking about it as building common values as well as building common reduction in emissions or clean energy infrastructure. And economic growth, of course, as your report outlines. And economic growth, of course. Because it is a piece of this industrial policy, a major piece, the Inflation Reduction Act, that is, I'm going to challenge you with one element that you would highlight that you think really underscores a lot of what we're talking about today. One piece of the bill that you think accelerates this broader movement. It's hard to pick out just one piece (laughs) in a bill that is so big and The thing for all of us that's so exciting is you and I have known each other for many years now, and the bill really is the accumulation and and bringing together of so many different ideas from so many of our different groups. I think one of the biggest success stories of the Inflation Reduction Act is, you know, at its core, the bill lays out an economic plan that marries the strengths of the federal government with the strengths of private investment. It's not relying on any one entity or set of entities or pathway to expand clean energy, but really making as many bets as is possible 
to get from an economy powered by fossil fuels and clean sources to an economy that's powered by clean sources. That all of the clean energy technologies and innovation approach was an approach that was controversial not that many years ago. Many people saying, don't focus on anything but renewables. It can do it alone. Any investment in anything other than renewables is a bad bet. That debate is over. And the policy, the federal government, whether it's on which technologies are used or what kind of investment or credit or loan capital vehicles being used is over. It's everything all the time as effectively as possible. Right. As we're talking about the actual public funding going into this, we should expect there to be unprecedented amount of private spending that will also complement this bill. And we'll see that to ramp up these new industries and existing industries in exciting ways, I think. That's a positive note. And I don't mean to bring it down, but I think I have to ask you about the situation in Europe, especially since I know Third Way is doing more and more work in Europe. And we're all looking now at a difficult winter ahead, potentially for our allies and friends in Europe as they look at keeping their homes warm and lights on and and everything amid the winter months. And this is, of course, amid the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine, where Europe is trying to get off of Russian energy supplies but there are potentially going to be, you know, kinks in the system. And, you know, while we want to make the U.S. this arsenal of clean energy and we're on our way, it's not fully in place today. So how do you think about the immediate near term, perhaps just as soon as this winter and what it means for our European allies and security goals we have right now amid this conflict going on in Europe and what the U.S. can do at this time? Yeah, the crisis in Europe caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine is going to hit another potentially very acute point this winter. We shouldn't think of it only as a one winter episode. There could be several winters ahead as Europe cuts its ties to Russian fossil fuels, where gas and oil are going to be much more expensive and in much more short supply. In the short term, the biggest challenge for our European allies is ensuring they have enough gas just for this upcoming winter. And they're making every effort to address that now. The European Commission's Energy Council is leading the charge to stabilize the crisis and then bring down soaring prices, which have hit a level that make the concerns that Americans have, understandably from our standpoint, look like nothing. If they don't get this under control, we could see gas rationing that would impact entire industries, could see temporary or long-term shutdowns across parts of Europe in the heavy industries that have thrived and helped maintain Europe's economic success for decades. And Europe would have to make some tough decisions that they shouldn't have to make. A couple of highlights from that, you know, the EU is trying to develop a coordinated mandatory EU-wide plan that would reduce demand for electricity and gas and cap prices so that there would be a shift from customers bearing the burden to windfall profits tax so that companies that are generating and transporting energy and making record profits would bear a larger part of the burden. Others are looking for other means at the member state level to lower costs while financially supporting struggling companies. And that includes, I think, Sweden and Finland and Germany, for example, are offering 
new credit lines for companies that are at the brink of defaulting. And so it really is an all policy hands on deck moment. One thing that is particularly scary is that this is not simply an energy crisis or a potential economic crisis. There is a dangerous political element to this as well. The backdrop of Europe's energy crisis is also giving rise to another round of right-wing extremism. We've seen protests in Germany and the Czech Republic driven by extreme right-wing political parties that is trying to exploit a situation caused by Russian aggression to put, ironically, parties that oftentimes are allied with or adjacent to the Russian president in power. We're also seeing in Sweden and in Italy the resurgence of far right-wing parties that are coming to power in part because of other issues, immigration and crime, but have similar policies when it comes to Russia, when it comes to being skeptical or hostile to clean energy and to action on climate as the parties in Germany and in the Czech Republic. It reinforces why this is not merely for the United States, a question of the economy or the question of climate action, both of which are really important, but also a question of values and protecting common interests and protecting our allies' democracies. The stakes feel exceptionally high. If if I had just climate anxiety, I've now got democracy anxiety. But I guess it just speaks to the fact that this is a historic moment in time where we are dealing with a number of transitions, if you will, and um, there's a lot at stake. Doesn't it? It feels like peak 2022 is that we can't simply have one anxiety (laughs) caused by a crisis or a political problem. They've all got to come together. It's like every crisis is the Coachella of crises <laughs> instead of just being a, a one-off, one-night gig at a club. So, you, Well, I'm not having any fun, except that I am. It's the best of times and the worst of times, right? So much potential. <laughs> point of phrase, yes. Yes, exactly. So much potential ahead of us, as we discussed earlier in this discussion. But also, as you just laid out, a lot of uncertainty on the horizon. So, I guess if nothing else, it just goes to show that we all have a role to play an agency in figuring out what the next chapter looks like. Absolutely. The amazing thing about this last year and a half for the United States and globally around climate change is that we are turning a page. Instead of continuing to ask the question of when is the United States going to finally act and put its policy and money where its heart has been? We now get to say, how do we leverage well over half a trillion dollars in federal policy and investment to get more clean energy invented and developed and built around the world? And how do we all build more of the value change and develop and export a common set of values around preserving sovereignty and and self-determination? It sounds heady and like a lot to bite off. But at a moment when multiple crises are coming together, it's really heartening and slightly easier to go to sleep at night knowing that we have some new tools that are starting to get at the scale of the challenges we face. 
I felt a little bit like Coachella at the Inflation Reduction Act ceremony in DC earlier this month where we got to feel that energy and we got to feel the excitement of everyone celebrating the fact that this bill got across the finish line. So many experts from scientists to congressional staffers to organizations like yours to individual companies and nonprofits, activists came together to realize what they had accomplished. And I think it is a symbol, it's a sign, it's it's evidence of what we can do when we seize the opportunities ahead of us. So maybe that's a positive note we can end on despite the challenges that lie ahead. Absolutely. I wish we had had this conversation and idea before the White House event so we could have suggested a more Coachella-like lineup in addition to (laughs) the wonderful speakers that were at the event. I wouldn't have minded Lizzo added to the program, I'm just saying. Lizzo would have (laughs) been fantastic. God bless James Taylor. I think there were a lot of people in the audience who had slightly blank stares when he came on stage because they are from a different generation. I'm from a different generation and I'm no longer young, but Lizzo would have been pretty fantastic. We'll have to, we'll have to add that to the next celebration of a climate victory. Yes, I hope she's on board. Well, we'll, we'll reach out to her people. Fantastic. Um, well, with that, we'll end this part of the conversation and turn now for closing comments that I think sum up a lot of what we talked about. And these are comments coming directly from the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, who spoke recently at a Third Way event announcing the new report, Potential for U.S. Competitiveness in Emerging Clean Technologies, the one we mentioned earlier from Third Way, Breakthrough Energy, and Boston Consulting Group. Josh, thank you so much for your insights and for inspiring this entire podcast series. Let's turn now to Secretary Granholm and her version of how she sees America can lead and be that arsenal of clean energy. Hi, everybody. Um, Thanks for being here. First of all, thanks to Third Way for organizing. And uh, thanks to the partners in the report that's about to be issued, uh, Boston Consulting Group and uh, Breakthrough. Really appreciate the smart way it has been analyzed, the six sectors, all of that, completely dovetailing with what the administration is doing and intends to do. So let me just start with this. On our way uh, this week to the IRA celebration at the White House, I was thinking about a visit that I made with securing America's future energy safe to China about a decade ago. It was just after I was governor of Michigan. We went to look at what China was doing in their strategy on energy policy. And we went to a number, we actually was, a, it was, we met with a number of mayors from a couple of provinces, and they had a, a demonstration of the technologies that they were investing in and the strategies they were using, super fascinating. And as one of the demonstrations was happening, I was standing next to one of the mayors, and he leans over to me and he says, so when do you think the United States is gonna get federal energy policy? And I said, oh, I don't know, Congress is so divided, it's gonna be really hard, states may be acting, but it's, you know, it's very um, disconnected. And he said to me, he got this big smile, and he said, take your time. Take your time, because of course our passivity has been other countries' opportunity. And so, I, as governor of Michigan, when I was governor of Michigan, we saw so many jobs and factories leave because of globalization, and we did not have a strategy. And so now we have a president who understands the importance of creating opportunity out of this clean energy sector in the United States, that we are not going to stand by and watch 
you know, the more thousands of factories go overseas because we are going to level the playing field. We're going to make it competitive to be able to build stuff in this growing sector in the United States. No more are we going to be bystanders. No more are we going to bring a knife to a gunfight. Right? Right. So the president's strategy, right? This three-pronged strategy that Josh described, in addition to a bunch of other stuff, of course, the administration is doing. But these are the three that I consider the most important body of work. And when I say body, I mean the bipartisan infrastructure law. Just 11 months ago, that is sort of the backbone. The backbone because it is focused on place-based hubs, technologies that are next-generation technologies, huge opportunity to breathe life into areas of the country that may have been disproportionately negatively affected by either trade policy or lack of strategy on the ground or by pollution, fence-line communities, front-line communities, and hubs for technology that get the private sector engaged in this next generation of clean energy technologies. For example, you know, next generation clean hydrogen, next, you know, advanced nuclear reactors, making sure that we're doing the right thing by focusing on uh, direct air capture and carbon capture and all of the technologies that y'all have been looking at uh, through the report that's going to be issued today. Bipartisan infrastructure law, backbone. The brains, of course, is the CHIPS Act. And when I say that, obviously, micro, you know, technologies, chips and science, right? So the technology associated with supply chains, we cannot just see that either. And so being able to, I was just uh, on Monday in Idaho for the groundbreaking of Micron's $15 billion semiconductor facility. That's one of the whole series of announcements that have been made as a result of the passage of the CHIPS and Science Act. We at the Department of Energy, on the science side, we're looking at this next generation series of technologies as well, and we're announcing a whole series of earth shots, we call them, that are, you know, reach goals on reducing the costs for technologies that make them, will make them globally competitive and competitive with traditional sources of energy. Today we're announcing an earth shot related to offshore floating wind platforms, floating wind, so that we can reduce the cost of that by 70% to $45 a megawatt hour. But all of these earth shots, we have an earth shot on clean hydrogen, we have an earth shot on direct air capture, we announced last week an earth shot on enhanced geothermal systems, the heat beneath our feet. We have announced an earth shot on long duration energy storage. That's the chips in science and the investment in science is the second piece of the strategy in the Biden administration. And the third piece, of course, is the heart and lungs, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. And that is going to really get the private sector off the sidelines by leveling the playing field and making us competitive to be able to secure these jobs in America. I'm super excited to be able to have this conversation with three people who absolutely bring an important perspective because they're all working in this space. I will say this, that it is important for us to be strategic 
I mean, none of these bills happen by happenstance. As you know, if you've read anything about the Inflation Reduction Act, it has a whole series of strategies in there, like the strategy to incentivize onshoring, because there's content provisions to be able to access these tax credits. The strategy about lifting wages gets you additional points in your tax credits if you pay prevailing wage, if you have apprenticeships, the strategy of making sure that we do right by communities that have been on the front lines, disadvantaged communities, gets you extra points if you locate your technology or your manufacturing opportunity in those communities or certainly consult with them in a meaningful way. So there's all sorts of strategy that happens. But the strategy we also need is this global strategy. Where can we have a comparative advantage as a country? And if we don't have that comparative advantage, even with these, these bills, what can we do to gain an advantage? Where does it make sense for us to partner globally with allies that we can have some assurances we'll have our back in tough times, but may also be able to provide uh, some inputs that we don't have right away? So there's all sorts of global competitiveness considerations. On that note, we've come to an end of this episode and the Arsenal of Clean Energy podcast series, at least for now. A big thank you to Josh Fried and the entire Third Way team for supporting this series, especially Jared DeWeese. It's always a pleasure to work with you. These topics are heavy, but it's an honor to get to host these conversations and dig into these issues in such a meaningful way. Thanks to all of our guests who took time out of their busy days to come speak with us. Thanks also to World War Zero for sharing this podcast series in their newsletter. And if you don't get that newsletter, be sure to sign up at worldwarzero.com. Finally, thanks to our editor, Kyle McDonald, as well as the team at the USD Schwarzenegger Institute and Canary Media. Thanks to all of you for listening. Political Climate has lots of great episodes, including this series, so be sure to check out the podcast feed and hit subscribe if you haven't yet. We have lots of fresh content coming up in the coming weeks. I'm Julia Piper. So long for now. Mm-hmm.